Well, good morning on the fourth day. Yeah. Going by very rapidly. We're actually halfway through today, except that we have a last great day on Friday, so we get an extra day. It'll be a nine-day festival this year. It's kind of unusual the way it worked out, though. That's okay. We'll survive it. Let's get right back into the book of Deuteronomy this morning and uh, see if we can make some progress. We're still in chapter 1, but he's getting on them here for rebelling and not doing what God told them to do and murmuring, complaining, griping. You know what complaining and griping and murmuring does to your face and what it does to your attitude and your mind and your approach to life, it just puts you in a negative frame of mind. And I know my grandmother, my aunts, my mother sang all kinds of little songs to me and told me little stories and poems to uh, look on the sunny side and uh, all those kinds that they did, trying to teach to be positive, trying to teach to see the good, even when there are obstacles, and fighting through whatever's bad, and coming out on the correct side with a cheerful, good, happy uh, attitude. And that's kind of what life is all about, because our minds go up and down, and it's easy sometimes to dwell on negative. Uh, there's a vast array of people in there. Some people nearly always have a smile. Some people nearly always have a frown. And somewhere in there between, most of us fit. But God is trying to get us to have a positive outlook. And even when we get in a bad one, then He does things to us, sometimes chastening, in order to get us to change our mind, our attitude, our approach, and be positive again and be happy again. And that's one of the big things I have with child-rearing, is that a child is doing something and you tell them to stop it, and they don't want to stop it, so they pout, and they put them in a bad attitude. And... Sometimes people send them into their room if they're little and tell them don't come out until you can smile and be happy. So I don't know that that's really a good way to go about it because then they just go in their room and pout some more <laughs> and how badly they're treated. Um, then they might eventually get over it and come out. But there are ways to deal with them so that they get out of that negative, pouty, attitude and be smiling and friendly and cheerful and happy again. And that's the whole purpose, and that's what God did here with these Israelites. They, just at the drop of a hat, and hats dropped off and it seemed, uh, they'd be in a murmuring, complaining, griping, unthankful attitude. And we have so much to be thankful for, and so did they. Uh, we may have all kinds of issues, but they shouldn't change our approach to life. 
God wants us to be cheerful and happy and thankful. So, you have a difficulty. Sing in the rain, that's all right. But get over it and be thankful because look at all the things we have to be thankful for. I don't remember in the Protestant church even having a song that said, Count your many curses, name them one by one. It was your blessings. And if you're counting those, it's hard to be upset about the things that aren't good. It's all about attitude. And they had lousy ones a lot of the time. So over and over here, <clears throat> he works on them to get them to be thankful for what he was doing for them and not for the things that they feared, which actually, in most cases, weren't going to happen anyway if they would straighten up. If they didn't, then the things they feared happened. So with God, getting yourself in the right attitude, thankful, grateful, happy, uh, is what he's after. And when we get there, things usually ease, evil ease up. I almost said evil up. It's still early. Anyway, here in chapter 1, <coughs> verse 26, he's saying, Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment. You murmured in your tents, talked behind your back, kind of thing. Um saying, the people is greater and taller than we. Now, we've already read here how he said he'd take care of them, and it didn't matter how tall they were. The taller they are, the further they fall, that's all. Just deal with it and go on, realizing God is bigger than them. David did with Goliath. He was quite a tall man, 12 feet or so, I think. And uh, David said, so what? I'm, God's on my side. And the whole army wouldn't go after that one man. But David did. And guess what? He won. <laughs> because God was with him and he couldn't lose. So he had a positive attitude. Here's this Goliath standing there threatening to make mincemeat of him. And he said, eh, God will take care of it. Uh, see, why David was a man after God's own heart. Now, we could point out errors he made like we can on ourselves, but when it came right down to it, he trusted God and had faith in God, and some of those characteristics were so great in his personality that when he did screw up, God was willing to forgive him, even though sometimes there were penalties involved. Uh, he still maintained, overall, a wonderful relationship with God because of his attitude. He didn't murmur. He didn't complain. Uh, he saw problems. He went after them. Goliath was a problem. He was a young fellow, but that showed his personality and character. If there's a problem there, I don't care how big it is, I'm going after it. He was aggressive. And God wants us to be that way with sin, aggressive against the world, aggressive against Satan. And whatever comes at us, we are to aggressively seek God and go His way and overcome any problems, no matter how tall they were, uh, through God and His Spirit and His help. 
But you know, that requires, as we got the sermon yesterday, that requires faith and trust. Because, yes, that giant is tall. Yes, that problem is big. And we look at it and we use our perspective. It's way bigger than I am. And I is the big problem there. It's not bigger than God is. You've never met a problem that is bigger than God is. It's just a matter of whether you want to turn it over to Him and trust Him with it or not. That's where you recognize the sovereignty, the power, the might of God. And it's where you also have to admit that He's with you. We have to grasp that He is with us. It's one thing to say, God is great, God is wonderful, He's sovereign, He created the universe, but it's a whole other step to say, but He called me, He loves me individually, and He will take care of me. Because it's me you're worried about, it isn't somebody else. So you have to be able to apply that relationship to your own self. There's a song that we may learn. I don't, I'm debating it a little bit. It's entitled, What's Not to Love? And it's a, it's a, it's a cute song. It's kind of done a little tongue-in-cheek, actually, but but it's still serious. What's not to love about Jesus? What's not to love about amazing grace? What's not to love about my sins have been erased? What's not to love? Because there's so many things that he does for us that are there to love. The part that kind of gets me a little bit is toward the end, he, he says that uh, he's the apple of Jesus' eye. And that sounds a little forward, a little presumptuous, a little selfish in a way. But Christ does say there in Zechariah that his people who are called to respond to him are the apple of his eye. Now, as a group, we can say, yes, we're the apple of his eye, maybe. As, I mean, as Christians as a whole, not just this little group. I mean, real Christians. But when you draw it down to self... It seems a little pretentious. On the other hand, you're part of the apple of his eye. And what I'm driving at here, apart from the song, is we have a personal relationship with him. And this one, he goes on to say how he's uh, adopted and the king gave him his name. Well, he has with us all. So that's not out of line. Then he says his picture's in his wallet, and that, that again kind of gets me, because I'm his favorite child. Uh, yeah, vain, but just a little bit right. Each one of us is his child, and in that sense, a favorite child, because he is not a respecter of persons, so he loves us all equally. Now, he gets along with some of us better than others. And he got along with John and had a close relationship with him as an apostle. And the others saw and understood that. 
So when it was a dicey, questionable situation, they'd say, Hey, John, you ask him. Because they knew that John could get his ear, in some respects, easier. You've had some of you, a lot of kids. You loved them all. You tried not to show favorites, maybe. But some of them you just got along with better than others. They were just easier to deal with. And humans are the same way with God. So if we're difficult for Him, we need to change our attitudes and get loving and kind and gentle and sweet and responsive instead of saying, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that now. I want to do this. We have to be responsive to Him like Samuel was to Eli, as I said the other day. Out of the sleep. You know, Samuel was young. He was probably sleeping hard. And he heard this voice. Samuel. Samuel. His response, his immediate response was, Here am I. What do you want? I'm here. Out of a deep sleep, probably. So he had... His mind, his emotions were such that he was incredibly responsive, happy to help, happy to do, instead of, oh, and God would tell Israel to do things, and they'd say, oh, and then they'd go in their tent and talk among themselves about how unfair God was or how unfair the church was or how nasty the preacher was. And that was sometimes uh, in the Protestant church. Uh, you, you either had the pastor over for chicken dinner, or you went home and had the pastor for dinner. Uh, and that's been done in the church of God, too. It's been done throughout Israel. But instead of listening for what we need to hear and learn by and take personal and change, we can blame him and say, well, he was talking just to me. He shouldn't have been talking just to me. He should have been talking to so-and-so. Or whatever we use. Or we'll say, I know who he's talking about. And somebody will come into your mind and you'll think, yep, that's the one. <coughs> and that absolves you of any guilt or responsibility. You can blame it on somebody else. Human nature is deceitful and desperately wicked. And that's a fight we have, brethren, to be in a good, right, positive attitude. And that's what God was dealing with with these Israelites, and it was a tough chore. So, they murmured and said, you brought us out here to deliver us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. They had a lot of different reasons to have bad attitudes. Uh, you know, at the Red Sea, at the water, the Amorites, wherever. There's a whole bunch of them through this book. And how are we going to do this? Uh, those that went in and spied discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller. I went over this yesterday. And the Anakims are there. They were 12, 13 feet tall. That's pretty tall. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the the Eternal, your God, bore you up as a man does bear his child in all the way that you went until you came to this place and then you started complaining again. 
who went in the way before who went or God did who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night to show you by what way you should go, and in a cloud by day. <coughs> God's presence was always visible to them, whether by cloud or by uh What's the other word here? Fire. Fire the day. and They always had, they didn't need flashlights. They could see day and night. They always knew where God was leading, by the cloud or by the fire. So they could travel at night if he wanted them to. Didn't matter. I guess you'd just get used to that, would you? The sun doesn't go up, sun doesn't go down for you. It's just, you can just always see where you're going. And the Lord heard the voice of your words and was angry and swore, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swore to give to your fathers. He was so happy to bless Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph with a promise of a land of Eden, a beautiful promised land, which we'll read about a little later. And... They couldn't keep that focus. They couldn't keep that vision. For lack of vision, the people perish, Hosea says. And that's what happened with these people. They couldn't, even with the cloud and the fire, they couldn't keep a focus on God is saving us. God is with us. Look, this isn't normal. It's usually dark and it's usually light. But we have... Guidance all the time. We don't get lost. We don't need GPS. Nothing. It's always there to show us where God wants us to go. Wouldn't that be nice? Think about that. You go through life, you have a decision whether to go this way or that way or this job or that job or this uh, person to marry or that one. Or you got all kinds of decisions. What kind of car to buy or can I buy? We have decisions all the time. Wouldn't it be nice and pleasant in a way if God would just guide you with every decision you had to make and you didn't have any difficulties or worries in finding the right path? Well, that was something he laid on them there. They always knew where to go, what to do, because they had that guidance day and night. Now, God doesn't normally do it that way, but here he had some rebellious people that he was trying to straighten out. So he did things for them that he doesn't do always, never did before, and never has done since. Although we're going to have a wall of fire around us pretty soon to defend us. And that may light it up quite a bit at night. But he doesn't do that because he made us free moral agents to decide which way to go. What is a wise decision? So we have to make those ourselves. I had some, two of my kids actually got involved with a Palestinian Protestant. And he would tell them that the, more or less, that God, Jesus sits on your shoulder. And if he came into their mind, they ought to buy a stereo today. That was Jesus telling them to go buy a stereo. 
it was that personal, that detailed, that kind of thing. He doesn't do that at all. He wants us to live the right kind of life, and a lot of these physical things are our decision to make. We need to use wisdom. If I'm going to buy that, do I have the money? Or is it better if I put it on a credit card and pay interest at 30% for the next three years? <laughs> Some of them are kind of no-brainers. That's true, no brain at all. Go put it on a credit card. Uh, that's, that's not very brainy. That's kind of empty vacuum head is what that is. But he did some special things for them. That's the point here. I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kedimoth unto Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace. So he even was a uh, peacemaker ahead of them and said, let me pass through your land. I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn to the right hand nor to the left. Just please just let us pass through. And you can sell me meat, and you can sell me water for money that I may drink, only I will pass through on my feet. So he gave them a financial opportunity if they just let them go through. <coughs> Not trying to take the land, just passing through. As the children of Esau, which shall dwell in Seir, and the Moabites, which dwell in Ar, did to me until I shall pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord gives us. So I've had others that have let us pass through. And, uh, would you please as well? But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by. This is Moses recounting history to them before they're ready to go into the promised land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as appears this day. So God actually went so far as to harden the king's heart so that he wouldn't let them pass through because he wanted to what? He wanted to deliver them. He wanted to show them again that he was with them and on their side, so he even set up an opportunity to prove that to them again. It's going to be hard on the king of Heshbon, but it was something he did for the Israelites as a positive thing. And the Lord said to me, Moses, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land before you, Begin to possess that you may inherit his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz, and the Lord your God delivered him before us, and we smote him and his sons and all his people. We took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. Only the cattle we took for a prey to ourselves and the spoil of the cities which we took. That should have been quite encouraging, really. Uh, they didn't even have to buy the meat. Uh, they just took it. From Arrowair, which is by the brink of the river of Arnon, and from the city that is by the river even Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only to the land of the children of Ammon you came not. 
nor into any place of the river Jabbok, nor to the cities in the mountains, nor whatsoever the eternal our God forbade us. So he told them to stay away from certain places, and he didn't take them there, and they didn't have to fight them. But they won in all the places that God said he would take them and they would win. You'd think that that would go up on your chart as a very positive thing, and God was with you. But we're human, and we forget so easy, don't we? Or so easily. We can have an absolute miracle one year, and two years later, we've forgotten it. That God delivered us. That God helped us. Maybe we ought to keep a diary of good things that God does for us. Our child was about to die, and he healed it. Uh, there are a lot of things God has done as benefits over the years that I have seen in my own family. I've seen people healed instantly outside my family as well. And it just happened. God gives us strength and confidence when we need it. I was ordained barely 22 years old in the ministry and went out to serve a church. Actually, pretty big. Well, it wasn't very big then. It got big in Miami. And on the way down there, I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I felt young. I felt untrained, even though I've been in college listening to all these things. And I knew quite a bit about the Scripture, having been through, been in the church for many years as a kid even, but then trained more at college. But I still was a little insecure. You know, how am I, at barely 22, going to go out and help people who are 60, 70, 80 years old manage their lives? Now, that sounds weird. And yet, on the other hand, if you know the Scriptures, you can apply them to their lives. But I didn't have a whole lot of life experience at that point either. How do you help somebody when you're still wet behind the ears? So I get to the town where I grew up on the honeymoon on the way to Miami, and my little uh, niece had had a bowel blockage. She was only like that tall, when I held. And she hadn't been potty for... I don't remember how long, but it was an inordinate amount of time. Days and days and days she had gone without going number two. And she was in a world of hurt. Great deal of pain and agony and moaning and groaning and crying. And my aunt asked me to anoint her. I'd never done that yet. Didn't know, you know, I didn't have the confidence that God would work through me and by His Spirit, heal her. There's a certain faith, a certain confidence you need as a human being to trust God to take care of things. So I summoned as much belief and faith as I could on the spot and went in and put oil on her head and prayed for her and then went back to the main house where relatives were to talk and so on. And five minutes later, we look out the window, and she's out running around playing and having a good time. And she had had quite a five or ten minutes 
getting rid of all that blockage, and she was completely healed of it. Well, to me, it was clear that as bound up as she was, and just a few minutes later, she's passed all of that and is out playing, I could see God's hand in it, and it gave me confidence that I could actually anoint people and God would hear it. I didn't do anything for her. I didn't give her a laxative or any such thing. I just asked God to help her. And he instantly did. Well, that was faith building in me that I could do as he instructs Aaron James and he would hear it. And there were other times the same way. But each time we see our children healed or ourselves or somebody else, it ought to give us confidence in the great God. And then we shouldn't forget those episodes. I'm thankful that I can pull it out of the back of my mind and bring it here and tell it to you, because it might help you to hear an example like that and realize God really does care. I don't have to run to the doctor every time I get a sniffle and go to the hospital and catch something more. Or take some chemical drugs that are going to start affecting other parts of my body, and let's don't get into all that. But can we trust God? Do we know Him that well? Do we have the faith? That's what it is. It isn't some great big religious term. It's simply believing against belief. As Nelson quoted Hebrews 11.1 1 yesterday, it's something you don't see, but you believe anyway. And believing, then God hears and answers because He's looking for trust. He's looking for us to believe Him. Now, these people were having trouble with that. Oh, you said you'd deliver us. Okay, here we are. We got across the Red Sea. Thank you, big deal. I'm thirsty. There's one thing after another. They had trouble trusting and believing in God. And here he is, sovereign of all the universe, all the power you could possibly want, made us with his own hands out of red dirt, and breathed the breath of life into us, and set up an incredible system whereby people can recreate that, only they don't have to pile up a bunch of dirt and be given the Ability to breathe life into it. An incredible system of how children are conceived and grow and are born. What a fabulous thing that is when you stop to think about it. Maybe we get used to it and don't think about it, but wow. Somebody had to make that whole process. They had to make it work. And it does and still does. How can we forget? And we see things like that that are unimaginable. I mean, human beings are trying to recreate humankind. And they're running into all kinds of things, and they've decided instead just to build robots, aren't human, but they're machines. Because they can't do the things that God can do. 
But they tell us, don't trust God, trust science. We'll take care of all your problems. We can make meat for you that didn't come from a cow. Oh, jolly jolly, wow, that's good news. We can have good meat from no cow. Instead, it came from the chemical plant. That's going to be good for us. So, God took care of them. Chapter 3, Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, <clears throat> came out against us, he and all his people, to battle. And the Lord said to me, Fear him not. Now, Moses had a characteristic in that he actually believed God. God would tell him something, and he would believe it. He had faith. And he became a friend of God, whom God listened to carefully, because Moses had a wonderful attitude most of the time. So God said, Don't fear him, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, and others. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we smote them until none was left to him remaining. We took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we took not from them. Three, sixty cities. All the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og, and Bashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, beside unwalled towns, a great many. So, farming area, uh, scattered houses, no walls, but the cities themselves were all walled up, and 60 of them God gave into their hand. So, he showed, I can fight for you, be with you when you fight, or I can simply deliver you without a fight. I can do it either way. Get the point? Trust me and everything will go well. That's what we're here to learn. Trust God and everything will go well. Things may look like they're going south, but God can turn it around. Just like he did here when it looked like they were going south. Six, and we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon, men, women, and children, took the spoil of the cattle. Uh, we took at that time, verse 8, out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, the land that was in on this side, Jordan, from the river of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Uh, that's the side that the uh, Manassites, and I think Levites, was it? Uh, three tribes, anyway, did, didn't want to cross the Jordan. They liked it over there. And God gave them that land, and... He said, if you'll go fight with the others across the Jordan, you can come back here and live when it's done, but you've got to help your brothers. You can't just ignore them, and you stay here and make them go fight for it. You've got to help them. It was a family. So he took all the cities of the plains and so on. I won't read all of it. Verse 11, for only Ab, king of uh, Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Wood might not have been strong enough. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? 
Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it, and the cubit of a man, which was eighteen inches. Uh, that means he was thirteen and a half feet tall, and his bed was six feet wide. Well, it's only a little more than king size, or about king's California king today. But he didn't just sleep on one side of it. He was thirteen and a half tall and about so broad. And I can understand them being upset going against a king that tall who had soldiers that tall. Uh, that's scary. But God took care of it. And this land which we possessed at that time from Aroer, which is by the river Arnon, and half Mount Gilead, and the cities thereof gave I to the Reubenites and the Gadites, and to the Gadites, and the rest of Gilead, uh, being the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half tribe of Manasseh, so as Reuben and Manasseh, and it was called the land of giants. They have found skeletons that tall in Utah been documented. There have been there were giants living here. Uh, I know someone who has a child up in Johnson Canyon above Kanab who found a very large skull with a double row of teeth. A lot of those giants had two rows of teeth. He found a head buried under the in, underground. And what happened to that head? He didn't show it to me. He took it to St. George and turned it in to some archaeologists there, and it was never heard of again. Smithsonian, uh, the Mormon Church, various ones had told the people, any artifacts you find, you turn in. Our government and our scientists don't want us to know what was here? There were Spanish shields and swords and helmets and all kinds of stuff all over southern Utah. They've all been gathered up and hidden away. I know where a few things are that I've dug to see. But most of it, they gathered up and put it away or destroyed it because they didn't want the real truth of history to be known. It's just like I think most of us realize by now that the fairy tale we got in school about Columbus in 1492 and all that was a hoax. He didn't discover this country. He had maps on board that showed him where to go. And they told us he was looking for India. No, he was not. He knew there were vast treasures buried in the United States and Mexico, and that's what he was looking for. You had to sail clear to Asia, maybe, to find the peacocks and apes they tell us he was trying to find. No, he was looking for gold and silver, is what he was looking for, and he had maps of how to get here. This has all come out more recently. I think Joseph Smith was told by the Jesuits that there was great treasure in southern Utah. And Brigham knew it wasn't up in northern Utah. He stood right there in a hurricane and said, within 50 miles of here, the greatest treasures known to man. 
And there were two or three Mormons who actually went there and found some of those. But they were so upset at the Mormons by then and at Brigham that they didn't tell him where it was. One of them was a lieutenant of Brigham Young's, and he had the uh, Meadows Master blamed on him. And they stood him up, allegedly, to assassinate him and to fall into his coffin when they pulled the triggers. But he had had a vest put on, and when they pulled the triggers, he fell over into the coffin. Everybody left, and he got up and went on about his business, and there were letters from him uh, to his sister and others years after he had been assassinated. But he had a bad attitude toward Brigham <clears throat> because he had been under orders to do the Meadows Massacre, and then he got to be the scapegoat. And there are even stories that he may have gone back and shot Brigham Young, but they don't want to admit that Brigham was shot. But you can find out these things. But I think the Jesuits told Joseph Smith generally where the treasures were. Hitler knew where they were. He had people over here during World War II combing Zion Park and south of here and all over this area looking for the fabulous treasures that he had been told are here. So, the gentry, the ruling class in Europe knew of these things. They knew when the, uh, the people with the red flags, um, help me here, were run out of France by the Pope, and they left in their ships, had the red flags flying. I'll think of the name of them in just a minute. Uh, and Columbus flew those red flags when he came here looking for the treasures and for them. Because he wanted them to know if they were here, <coughs> that he was flying their flag as friendship. So all of this went on, and these people knew. Now, God has hid it so that they have not found it and made it public. Even the few who did find it, and I've got all kinds of evidence to show about where, it's irrefutable. It's just irrefutable. I know it's there. And I know because God said so in Isaiah 44 and 45. He says he's going to open it up. And those treasures will be revealed, and they will be used to be shown to the whole world, east to west, that God is God. It's not just gold and silver. It's the temple treasures. It's the records of Israel, probably the original manuscripts of scriptures that were written by hand. I think there's all kinds of things there that are going to come out and prove that God is God. And what does that do? If there are maps there that show where the original cities were in northern Arizona and Utah, then it'll be undeniable that Israel was here and the promised land was here. I know where there are at least two mummies with red hair and blonde hair. I could go dig them up today. 
those treasures are going to prove to the whole world that this is the place. And when the temple is built, the beast and false prophet are going to take it over on the holy mountain of God, Jerusalem. And you and I are going to have to flee to Zion in a hurry. This is it. I've seen too much proof. Can I make more than 20 people believe that? Mm, I doubt it. Not till it happens. And then it will be shoes to show the whole world from the east to the west that God is God. Now, they won't like it. And they won't accept God. They just won't. So what do you do to prove your God? What did God have to do here to try to prove to these hard-headed, complaining, griping Israelites that He was God? There is no God but Jehovah. Only one. Father and Son. That's it. No more. But how do you get people to believe and accept that? Well, you can show them by these treasures that are going to be shown that the Bible clearly says will be shown. You can tell them in sermons and follow it up with plagues when they don't repent, like the two witnesses are going to do. And then you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to send the seven last plagues and destroy almost all the people that are left on earth by heavenly signs and wonders and angels and turning Satan and the demons loose on them. And that's what it's going to take to humble mankind. Now, Satan is fabricating the same plan. He always copies what God does. And this new world order and new one world and all this thing that they're working so hard to do is a plan by Satan to kill most people. And now some of the leaders of it are beginning to say, we need to kill all people. Except me. But they think the earth and the planet will be better off without people. I've said this over and over. But it's staring us in the face. In Lahaina, Maui, is a real good example of what they're planning to do to not just little towns, but cities and all kinds of places. They've been burning Canada for the last year with artificially set fires from new weapons. Direct energy weapons. And they can just burn a place up. They've proved it to us. How many people are waking up? Not very many. Get on with my life, whatever I'm doing, my job, my TV, my phone. What's it going to take to show them that the new world order is an enemy? Because they're going to create so much confusion that everybody's going to say, "Give me, send, give me my digital money this month. I got to have something to eat." So hunger is going to make them turn. And worship the beast. God laid it all out for us. And now we see it 
in force coming upon us day by day, and people are still not paying any attention. They won't pay any attention until they have nothing to eat. And then they'll say, yeah, I'll sign up. They may not want the vaccination this next round, which is almost upon us. They'll say, no, I'm not going to take the vaccination. Well, okay, no food for you. And then suddenly they'll say, I'd rather eat than not be vaccinated. That's the way people are. So the beast is going to worship, be worshipped by the whole world, except for a very few people who hear God's message. So why am I going through Deuteronomy, this ancient history? is an example to show how hard it was to get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's children to believe that there was a God who cared about them, who would take care of them. You believe it yet? Are you going to Zion and live in a Garden of Eden type situation which God promises all through the prophecies? Or not? Do we have that kind of faith and trust that He'll take care of us when this whole world comes apart at the seams and they're fighting World War III, which has already begun, it just hasn't escalated to the point that the whole world is involved in the same battle yet. But it's very quickly approaching that in the Ukraine. The Northern Army, Russia, which this book says is going to attack and destroy this nation, we are already punching, punching, punching at, day by day, sending more ammo, more planes, more tanks, more everything, to get rid of our weapons so it will make it easy for the Russians to come in and take over. Come on, this whole thing's a farce. I hope we see that. When you have a new weapon that can wipe out Lahaina, Hawaii, in minutes, you think the Russians and the Chinese don't have those? If the U.S. government has them, I know China and Russia do because we're way behind in technological development now. Clintons and others sold our secrets to them and they improved upon them. And Jeremiah tells us that our leaders will sell us out. And if Biden, Obama, and Clinton, and all those, and even Bushes, haven't, then you have no clue what's going on in this nation. We are sold out. Now, they could destroy Kiev with a new weapon in ten minutes and have that whole thing over with. But we have made a deal with them, and as much as we can accuse each other, Biden's handlers, Obama or whoever, are calling Putin at night and zing ding dong over in China as well, and talking to them about how we're going to accomplish this thing of getting rid of the United States. Our leaders are doing that. And then we make all this noise in the media about how bad they, those people are but we're playing handsy and footsy with them every day. Russia could end that war so fast, and they could, then they could take care of Europe so fast. But they don't want a nuclear bomb us. Chinese don't want a nuclear bomb us at all. They want our land, and they don't want 
a nuclear winter here where you can't survive. They want to be able to use the land in the cities. So they're weakening us to the point, all they got to do when they start the civil war in this country and let us start killing each other off, all they got to do is walk in with UN soldiers and take over and finish us off. It'll be a cakewalk. That's what's shaping up, and it fits what the Scripture says are going to happen. Very clearly so. And a lot of people wouldn't believe that, but I've got it in here. Now, who am I going to believe? Biden? Putin? Z? I'm going to believe God. He tells me this is how it's going to occur, and I believe him. That's why I'm here instead of in Alaska or somewhere. Because this is the place, and I've been shown and proved it's the place. So, if God's working in this area, it's where I want to be and intend to stay. I believe him. His word is true. He is God. Now, do I struggle with my belief and faith day to day? As this happens, that happens, something else happens? You have to reaffirm it. The Spirit has to be renewed in us day by day. Because it's so easy for humans to forget. These people didn't have the Spirit of God. And boy, did they have a trouble believing in God. Cloud of fire and clouds as well. By day and night. Here they are eating bread that comes out of the sky and quail that flew in where there weren't any quail. And they couldn't believe God. Yeah, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Why didn't you take them? <laughs> no. You don't trust me. You don't believe me. To me, you're just, I'm just a, a ghost in the sky to you. God couldn't cause this to happen for you. God couldn't have sent the boat, in other words. God couldn't have sent the quail. He couldn't have sent the manna. You'd never seen that. That's what they called it, was what's it in Hebrew. What's it? Oh. Whatever it is, pretty good. And that's what they ate. Still, they couldn't believe God. So... What does he have to send to rescue us before we believe? Now, he sent us his word. He said, believe it. So, at least you, when you saw there in Micah 4 that he says, get out of the cities of Babylon and go dwell in the wilderness, at least you said, hmm, that's scripture. I guess I'll go do that. God laid it on you, and you decided to obey Okay, let's do that with everything in here. Maybe we won't have to go through what these people did. So he told them they weren't going into the land except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. <coughs> he shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he has trodden upon and to his children because he has wholly followed the eternal. I'm going to send you into that land. Well, send us to check it out. Okay, we checked it out. 
it's good. The only problem there is giants, but God can take care of them. They have lots of fruit and lots of goodies and grass grows and cattle and that's a beautiful land. And all twelve of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, said, oh, those people are too big for us. We can't go in there. How big is God? How big is God? Is he bigger than a thirteen and a half foot odd? Yeah. But when you're looking at a thirteen and a half footer, I haven't seen one yet. When you're looking at one of those, it's easy to forget the God who made the universe. Because that guy's big. I've been around some seven foot plus basketball players and I felt like a puny little nothing compared to them. I had one of them one time pat me on the head and say, it's okay, little man. If I could have reached high enough, I'd have smacked him. I couldn't reach that high. Maybe I was scared to. But little man syndrome caught me at that moment, and I was not happy. <laughs> I'm tall enough, thank you. My feet reach the floor. That's all I need. Anyway, Caleb, holy, follow the eternal. Also, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. He wasn't happy with Moses, saying, you also shall not go in there. And that specific was his striking the rock. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which stands before you, he shall go in there, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So the only two spies that came back and gave a good report were Joshua and Caleb. So it says those two are going to live, and they are going into the promised land as old men, but no one else under 40 or over 40 is going in, except those two. That made Joshua and Caleb feel pretty good, I reckon. They were the only ones that really believed. Out of all that multitude of people, two had the strength and the courage to say, okay, let's do it. David would have, if he'd have been there. Abraham would have. There are a few who would have. But out of that congregation of probably millions, only two. How rare is belief in God? How rare is it to say, okay, God said he'd take care of it, let's do it. That's pretty strong faith in someone you cannot see who says, I'm going to take care of you. And you and I are facing that same thing. This whole nation is about to be destroyed. One-third will die of famine and pestilence. One-third will die by the sword. And one-third will be taken into captivity and the sword after them. Ezekiel says it. These are the days of Ezekiel, as the song goes. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in our lifetime. Very soon. And these eclipses that are occurring are telling us that, I believe. Heavenly signs that this is about to happen. <clears throat> Can God take care of us? We're pretty heavily surrounded by people now, even out here. And there are 
millions and millions of people and millions and millions of soldiers who are going to be coming into America. They're already flooding across our borders. Not Mexicans, Chinese, Russians. They're flooding across our border, being sent all over our nation. They're coming for us soon. Where would you go from here? You're supposed to have a bug-out location according to some preppers. This is our bug-out place. Right out here in the open. Right here where we can be overrun. Running up here in the red cliff isn't going to help us a whole lot. You can only carry a little bit of food. and If you can get to the spring, uh, maybe a little water. And that's about it. God has to protect us in the middle of danger. When these people went up against people to fight them, they were going up against danger. (coughs) And sometimes they refused, and they got their hind ends whipped because they didn't believe God would take care of them. And they went at the wrong time. There's a time to fight, and there's a time not to fight. And you listen to God... And you figure out which it is. The time you want to fight is the time probably not to fight. The time you don't want to fight is when you should fight. And they should have fought here, but they said, oh, they're too big for us. All you got to do is cut them off the knees and they'll fall down. Whatever you can reach. But they can reach down and swat you like a fly, too. So there's reason to fear. But do you fear God more? That's the whole point. Verse 39, Moreover, your little ones which you said should be a prey, and your children which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, really young, they shall go in there, and to them will I give it, and they shall possess it. And here those little kids that didn't know right from wrong yet, had grown up to be almost 40 years of age, And they were about to go in. So he's telling them the story. That is for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, is what they'd been told. Then you answered and said to me, we have sinned against the eternal. Okay, so they finally admitted that their attitude was wrong. They didn't believe him, and that was a sin. They should have believed God, but they hadn't. So they came finally to admit it. Okay? That's a partial right answer. Partial. Not there yet. Like a kid still pouting. It's a partial surrender, but not a whole surrender yet. And until that whole surrender comes, and they begin to smile and be loving again, the job isn't done. And here it wasn't. So, you answered and said, we've sinned. We will go up and fight according to that the eternal our God commanded us. And when you had girded on every man his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the hill. Okay, we believe you now, God. We're going to quit rebelling. We've got our swords on. We're going to go fight. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, go not up, neither fight. For I am not among you, 
lest you be smitten before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Eternal and went presumptuously up into the hill. So when he told them to fight, they wouldn't. When he told them not to fight, they did. So when they admitted that they had sinned, they only partially came around to God. Admitting is not repenting. You can admit to yourself that you have a sin. Okay, you're part way there. But admitting it doesn't solve it. You've got to repent of it. You've got to change it. Fix it. Then you've got the job done. So, matter of history, the Amorites which dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and destroyed you in fear even to Hormah. You ever been chased by a big flock of bees? <laughs> that is confusing, frustrating, and scary. Probably we all have at one time or another. And you returned and wept before the Eternal, but the Eternal would not hearken to your voice nor give ear to you. So you abode in Kadesh many days according to the days that you abode there. So they hadn't fully and totally repented. They had said, we admit it. Okay, now we'll fight. And God says, well, yeah, but now's not the time to fight. Well, yeah, but we're going to fix this, so we're going to go fight. <laughs> Still wouldn't listen to him. That's recorded back in Numbers 14. He's our... Yeah, 14. He's just recounting it here to them, to their children, as they were going into the promised land. This is actually quite a story back here. Talking about Joshua and Caleb and how they searched the land. And when they came out and people wouldn't believe them, they searched, they rent their clothes. And told all Israel, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceedingly good land. He was talking about Israel in the Middle East, I'm sure. I've been there. And when I got off the plane and started driving around that country, I said, if this is the promised land, I'll pass. Thank you. I didn't want to go there. That wasn't a good place to be. It is inhospitable. It's a desert. For the most part, they don't have enough water in the Jordan River. I actually stepped across at one place. It doesn't give you that much water. This is a exceeding good land they're talking about. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not you against the Eternal, neither fear you this people of the land. Joshua and Caleb came back and gave them a wonderful report. Here it is. This is the historical record. For the, uh, they are bred for us. Their defense has departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Joshua and Caleb were cheerleaders. Let's go do this thing. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Eternal appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. 
So Joshua and Caleb gave their best testimony. Then God appeared in the ark Himself. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I've showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of you a greater nation and mightier than they. You're going to have some more kids and I'll make a nation of them because these aren't worth fooling with. They won't believe a word I tell them. They hear it. Mm, yeah, that sounds good. But then when it comes to do it, nah, that's too scary. And Moses said to the Lord, verse 13, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for you brought up this people in the might from among them. He says, now, don't do that. The Egyptians will hear about it. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that you, that you, Lord, are among this people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them by day, time, in a pillar of cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. The nations around knew this. And if the Egyptians heard of it, they would spread the story if it wasn't known somewhere. So he begins to appeal to God's office, to God's power, to God's ability, to what God was doing, and they, these other nations around wouldn't believe in God because all these things that were being said about God didn't save this people. So Moses is using God about God. That's what this amounts to. Verse 15, Now if you shall kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the, na the fame of you will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. So this is going to go against you if you kill them. Because you said you would do this, and now you've decided to just kill them instead. So Moses is using, probably very carefully here, uh, whatever he had built up in his relationship with God to tell God, you've got to do what you said or nobody's going to believe in you. Not just these Israelites, but nobody. Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great, according as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation, Pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy, and as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. 
That's a pretty strong testimony. Delivered boldly to God. We're to come boldly to the throne. We're not to come whining and crying and not believing. Come boldly. And Moses did. Now, he didn't accuse God in any way. He just said, look, you have the power. This is what you've done. Please continue it. Don't wipe them out and give yourself a bad reputation with the rest of the world because you didn't do it. Now, do we believe God is going to deliver us here at the end? We can use this same argument, brethren. We can say, you told us all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, that you were going to take out a tenth of the scattered people of your church, protect them, make the desert bloom as a rose, and make it be like Eden, and you'll put a wall of fire around them, and a canopy over them, not clouds, but a canopy, to protect them from weather and aluminum from airplanes and whatever. You're going to take care of them. Land of milk and honey and have wine and milk without money. Sounds pretty good these days, doesn't it? That's what he's told us he's going to do. That's what these scriptures say over and over and over. And you and I have read them over and over and over. What is our level of belief? That God is actually going to do this. The lesson is right here. So Moses only had to remind God of what he had said he was going to do, what he had been doing, and if he changed his mind and stomped them out, what that would do to others around them and what they would think of Israel's God. He used very good logic, very good history lesson, and he was bold enough to say it. Come boldly to the throne of grace. And the Lord said, verse 20, I have pardoned according to your word. I agree with you, Moses. You're right. I'm sorry. He might could have said, I understand, and you understand why I felt this way. You've been dealing with his people the same way I have, so surely you understand. I was getting to the point of losing my patience. Just as you lost your patience, actually lost it, when you struck the rock. So you've been up and down with them. You know what they're like. And boy, did he. So God said, I watched all this, and I saw what it did to you, and I'm getting kind of fed up myself. I've done everything I can for this people, and they won't listen. So I'm going to wipe them out. Moses said, you can't do that. That's against your word. It's against your character. It's against everything you stand for. And people won't believe your God. You've got to do it. And God had no ego, had no vanity, didn't argue with Moses. He said, you're right, Moses. You're right. Truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I'll see it through. I'll take care of it. 
I may have a momentary frustration with the Israelites, and I'll have frustration with those that follow. And when we get down to the end, it's going to be a godless world who doesn't believe in me at all, believes in science and Klaus Schwab instead, and whoever the beast and the false prophet turn out to be. So he's going to face another crisis. And this time he said way ahead of time and prophesied, most people will die. Christ will only come back to rule over about a hundred million there in Daniel. That's all, out of eight billion plus. Surely they shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, neither shall my, any of them that provoke me see it, except Caleb, because he had another, a different spirit with him, and has followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. He goes on down, talks about the Red Sea and how he delivered them. Verse 27, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. You ever have anybody that didn't like you and talked about you all the time? Put you down, sarcastic toward you, mumbled against you, talked about you? That's not very pleasant. I think we've probably all experienced it somewhere, some way, somehow in our lives. It doesn't make you feel good when everything said about you is negative and down, puts you down. Our ego can get to us, our vanity, and we can fight back, or we can be mad at them, or we can never forgive them. Or whatever, because it hurts our ego to think that somebody might not think highly of us. You shouldn't even think highly of yourself. New Testament tells us don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but to think just as highly of others. But it's sure easy to put people down, especially if there's something about them you just don't like. Their father forgot them. And these people were doing that with God and with Moses. But Caleb had a different spirit about him. He was positive. He believed in God. He believed if God said he'll do something, he'll do it. I'm going. But God gets tired of hearing that, don't you think? we got over 8 billion people here on the earth. And he can hear them all. He can see them all. He knows them all by name. He has quite a mind. And all he hears is this gripe complained all the time from down here on this earth. And everybody's saying there is no God, or he's gone far away, or he forgot us, or he died, or he's just too old, you know. So we'll follow science, or whatever we want to follow. And I'm sure God gets tired of that. And all the music we send up there. What a miserable mess to have to listen to this rock and pop rock and bad rock and rapping and on and on it goes. Just nasty, melodyless, full of, what of it, full of cursing, swearing, talking against God, 
And he hears, oh my God, constantly from billions of people. You get tired of that. You get tired of it as little one little human who might have three or four or ten people that don't like you. And it's all your system can stand not to punch them out or shoot them or whatever you're inclined to do. Shut them up. No. You have to love your enemies and do good to your enemies. A bullet in the heart is not doing them good. Well, it might seem to you that would be good for them. world would be a better place without them. But they may think the same thing of you. That's not the way to handle it. The way to handle it is the way God is handling it. He's being patient. He's waiting. But he's going to spank us at some point. Because he does not, he's willing to live with this for about 6,000 years. And that's the limit he set. He's going to take charge and people will either love him and respect him and obey him or they'll be burned up and forgotten because he is going to live in a universe of peace and joy and happiness. And there'll be no gossip. There'll be no back talk. There'll be no murmuring, no complaining, no fear of anything or anyone. That's the world he is going to build. And all this human works of the flesh is going to go away. So he was already dealing with it in a people with a people that he was trying to use as an example to the rest of the world, and they were tough to deal with. Stiff necked and hard hearted. But Caleb wasn't like that. Had a good attitude. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say to them, As truly as I live, says the Eternal, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, And all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swore to make you dwell therein, except Caleb and Joshua. That's all. Now that should have been an incredible testimony to these people who were listening to Moses retelling the story. Because nearly everybody who had been above 20 had already died and they were right at the edge of these promises being answered finally. So he's reminding them what their fathers had done, just as he does us in Zechariah 1, first part. Before he introduces the remnant and the two witnesses and says all the good things he's going to do. Don't be like your fathers. But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses 
they'll fall in this wilderness. Their kids had seen it. They'd seen it happen. Did it change them? No, it wasn't very long that they were doing the same thing all over again. Human beings learn very slowly. He had told them, Your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which you search the land, even forty days each day for a year, shall you bear your iniquities even forty years, and you shall know my breach of promise. They had breached the promise, and they're going to learn and see what that creates and causes. Verse 36, And the men which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation a murmur against him, by bringing up a slander upon the land. Here God was going to give them a place with grapes that big, and with everything they could possibly want in it, and they had slandered it. They said, I don't want this. They looked a gift horse in the mouth. God was going to give them something that was beautiful and wonderful, and He promised that He would, and that He would fight their battles for them as they went in. And they looked at the Anakins and said, Oh no, this can't happen. So they despised the gift that God had promised them. How do you feel if someone brings you a nice gift and you despise it? Eh, what did you bring me that for? Little kid, you know, they see something that they think's cute, and they, oh, that is so cute. I'm going to go give that to dad or mom or someone that they think of. So in their heart, they have this wonderful feeling. I have found something that is really nice. Maybe it's a flower, maybe it's an ugly rock, whatever it might be. But they like. And they want to share it with you. And you come and say, oh, that's a common rock. Breaks their little heart. You've got to ooh and all over that a little bit. You've got to let them know that you appreciate the thought. And you don't have to tell them it's ugly. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's cute. But it doesn't, doesn't pop your bubble. Did theirs, but are done yours. But you can make you can ruin their day if you despise what they out of their desire of heart bring to you, thinking they're going to make you happy. And God felt the same way. I'm giving you I'm giving you the Garden of Eden. I'm giving you the very best on earth. And I'll I'll go in there and I'll whack up the people, I'll lead you against them, and you can have everything they got. And it's going to be wonderful. And they say, oh no. God is not bigger than an Anakim. He can't fight them. We're not going. How did he feel? Look at what I've offered you. And you won't take it. Christ came and offered salvation. Forgiveness of our sins. Grace. Everything that he's offered us in the New Testament, and most people say, eh, I don't need that. 
I don't need that. Despise the gift of his very own son. Now that's not an ugly little rock. It's not a small little flower. It's the son of the God of the universe. And how many people are paying attention? What's not to love about what he's done? Pretty important. <clears throat> 37, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the eternal. Not only did they come and say, we can't do this, but they frustrated God and he caused them to die. Don't give a bad report about what God has offered. Give a good report. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of the men that went to the search the land, lived still. God made a difference. The obedient, the disobedient, the thankful, the grateful, and the gripers. And Moses told these sayings to the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. They said, oh man, how could they have done that? How could they have been that way? How could they have despised your gift, O great God? And they rose up early in the morning and got them into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and will go up to the place which the Eternal has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Eternal? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. And they went up anyway, and they got whooped. That's, what, that's the story that Moses was reminding them of here in Deuteronomy. I spent quite a bit of, ooh, man, did I spend quite a bit of time going through that. We're done for the day. We're overdone. Good thing Nelson cut it short yesterday. <laughs> 